Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Edgy talk, plain talk, unrivaled talk, Mike Graham. The only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate. The independent republic of Mike Graham. On your mobile, on your wavelengths, talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Welcome to Tuesday morning. It's a little bit grey and dull out there. We've got lots to talk about though. Ben Habib joins us up first, Chairman of Brexit Watch, former MEP of course as well. But we have something to say, uh, it has to be said, right up front. And that is about the Nicola Bully case. It's on all the front pages this morning. Uh, some terrible, terrible news for the family yesterday. Nikki, we can let you rest now, was the family statement after police in Lancashire confirmed that the body they had found uh, in the river, uh, in the river wire, was in fact Nicola Bully. Uh, she had been missing um, since January, uh, late January. And of course, um, the fears uh, that the family had that the worst had happened uh, have come true. The case is now with the coroner. But amongst other things, the family said that they were concerned about the way um, that certain sections of the media and certain sections of the public did behave. And we want to address that this morning because it's very clear to me that social media is out of control. There is no question at all that social media is like the Wild West. Now, you can say whatever you want about the behaviour of journalists, but behaviour by journalists in regular media is monitored, it is regulated. It is regulated in particular uh, in the broadcast media, right here where we sit. Uh, we are only... Um, monitored and governed by Ofcom. Uh, there are reasons why there is uh, rules in place for the conduct of journalists in these kinds of situations and if anything does go wrong uh, it is fixable. However, uh, when it get, comes to uh, the situation regarding social media, that is simply not the case. And people keep saying to me, what can we do about this social media frenzy? What can we do about people posting unfounded rumours on TikTok, libelous stories on TikTok, allegations which are completely unfounded on TikTok, on Twitter, on Facebook? These are things which are controlled. These are organisations which could, if they wish to, regulate things uh, in a way uh, that they ought to. Because what they do is they regulate things in political ways. They tell you you can't write certain things about COVID. You can't write certain things about masks. You can't write certain things about um, Donald Trump. Or you can't write certain things about Joe Biden. However, you can write certain things in murder cases or in cases of missing persons in which anything goes. 
and I think there's a very, very good way of stopping it, and we're going to be discussing that uh, as we go through. Let's not forget the print media are also regulated, um, so there's a difference now, I think, between what I'm going to call the regular media and social media. Social media started as a kind of open plan, open square for everybody to have their view. Well, that's all very well as long as people behave themselves, but clearly people are incapable of doing that, uh, so we're going to have to teach them how to do it, and they're going to have to be given more regulation in order to do it right. Free speech is all very well, but you cannot have free speech without responsibility. It's as simple as that. 0344 499 1000 is the number. We need to make that delineation. We're going to make it here on the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We're also going to talk about Vladimir Putin. He's still speaking now. Obviously, in his speech, uh, he's trying to make out that most of his country is behind him. Uh, he's talking about the West waging war on Russia. He's talking um, about um, the West seeking limitless power. He's trying to convince his apparatchiks and his uh, sort of defenders that the West is after him and he's defending the Russians' honour. You know, it's all very predictable stuff, but we'll have a look at all of that uh, coming up. Maggie Oliver joins us as well. We'll find out from her how dreadful uh, the scenes were up in Lancashire and why people are allowed to behave in the way that they are. Uh, we'll also have Laura Dodsworth here, of course, as well. Uh, she's got much to say about a great many things this morning. Uh, and we'll be talking to Ben Habib about what is going on with Brexit exactly and exactly how is Rishi Sunak about to sell Britain down the river. 0344 499 1000. This is the number to call. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Let's do it. A very good morning and a very warm welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham here with you until one o'clock for the next three hours. We want to hear from you, of course, as well, because your voices are as important to us uh, as anybody's. And you uh, can be the barometer of what you think I'm saying and what you think my thoughts are, because I believe very firmly that we need to get to grips with social media sooner rather than later. And for people to turn around, as some people were doing last night with me uh, on the talk, saying, well, how can you control what people do on social media? Well, you can. Surely you go after the social media giants themselves, legally, but you also maybe go after the people who are making allegations, uh, unfounded or otherwise, uh, on social media, which you could not do um, in print, uh, in, in, in magazines, in newspapers, on television, on the radio. You wouldn't be able to do it. How is it possible that you can do it in another arena? Let's talk to Ben Habib. Ben, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Now, we're going to get to um, the story in the front page of The Times in a moment. Brexit deal may trigger resignations, uh, Sunak is told, because nobody's quite sure what Rishi Sunak is up to. I'm not even sure if he knows what he's up to, but we'll get to that in a sec. <laughs> but let me ask you just first of all, generally speaking, about this um, sort of schism that seems to have opened up between what I'm calling this sort of traditional media. I mean, I don't want to upset people by calling it the the sort of mainstream media, but but basically the, the regulated media, I suppose we should call it, and the unregulated media, which appears to be more or less a place where anything goes. And surely something has to be done about that. Well, I mean, you know, the, the internet kind of emerged, didn't it, without any forethought, without any planning. And um, as you rightly say, Mike, the, the broadcast media, the written media, the traditional media is regulated yeah. by various bodies. And... The internet isn't. And there, there are moves afoot to bring forward something called the online uh, safety bill, harms bill, which um, will effectively result in the promoters and sponsors of these platforms. So Twitter will be responsible for policing its own platform. But it's not quite the same as having an independent regulator. And 
I'd be quite nervous of giving Twitter, for example, uh, the authority and obligation. Well, it has the authority anyway, because it's a private platform, but the obligation to be policing speech on its platform. Um, because as we've seen, and it is, again, as you alluded to, Mike, you know, they use that to promote their own political views and to shut down debate where they don't, don't want debate. So Yeah, but they already thinking, do that, or at least they have already been doing that. But what they won't do they, uh, is they won't do it in places where they should do it. Yeah, and, you know, I think a lot of... Uh, so let's just unpick the regulated media for a second. Part of the, the way that regulation works is to foist onto uh, journalists an obligation to police what they put out and the editors to monitor and audit what it is the journalists wish to put out. There's no mechanism like that on social media. Yeah. It just, you know, it's kind of just a, a vomit of information from people who we often don't even know the identity of. And I think at the heart of this, we need some kind of set of terms and conditions and requirements before you can actually enter the social media world yourself mm. as a promoter of your views. So, for example, if you go to my Twitter page, you'll see my name, you'll see clearly what I do for a living, uh, and you'll be able to get background information on me on on, on uh, Facebook and so on and so forth. Yeah. But there's so many people who, you know, uh, sign up with false names, and they use that as a mechanism to effectively say whatever they want, whenever they want. And... Before we move perhaps to some form of top-down regulated entity, I think we've got to, at the first instance, at least ensure that people sign up to a set of terms and conditions, disclose who they properly are, and that there's some kind of audit validation process about that. So that when people go on social media and say what they say, they can, for example, be sued for libel. Yeah. If, they're, you know, if they're putting views out there that are, that are, are, are wrong and offensive to other people. But also, if and, they can uh, be sued for libel, then surely the carrier of that information and the carrier of that libel should also be suable. So therefore, if you publish something on Twitter, uh, which is li which is libelous and you get done, then surely Twitter should also bear responsibility for that. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a difference between a newspaper carrying a view where the newspaper actually stands behind the view which is being promoted. It has an obligation to police whatever's coming forward before it comes forward. The internet and platforms like Twitter, Facebook and so on act as a kind of neutral medium, neutral in, in, in inverted commas medium, allowing people to post what they like. And there is a subtle difference there. But I think... Yes, but I'm talking about possibly... All right, well, let me, let me put it through another way then. Well, let me, what, what about yeah. after the fact? I mean, if somebody is sued on Twitter because of something they've said, Twitter is still the vehicle under which it's been published. Therefore, they should bear responsibility. Because I tell you what, I reckon if you started suing Twitter and you started suing TikTok, it would soon stop. Well, that would be... I mean, that would be a natural next step to hold them responsible for the views put out by people on the platform. But I think there is a, a pre-step where you've at least got to know the identity of the people who are members of the platform. No policing seems to take place. You know, when people level abuse at me on Twitter, the first thing I look at is whether they're a real human being or they've got a stupid Twitter handle that makes no sense. Mm. If they've got a Twitter handle that makes no sense, I just pay them no heed. Yeah. Because they're not engaging as individuals. They're not standing forward and being prepared to be counted. Mm. You know, you've got to at least be prepared to put your name forward and an authentic name. Um, you know, to, 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 to have a right to express an opinion. 
And um, so I think that's a minimum prerequisite before you're allowed onto these social media platforms. Mm. Yeah. And then, and then there is a fine balance between free speech and private enterprise being able to shut people down. You know, there have been a lot of good news stories that come out on social media, which mainstream media don't cover. There's a lot of political voice given to, to people like me, for example, that mainstream media, mainstream media wouldn't otherwise put forward. And there is that fine balance that needs to be navigated. I, I, I don't have an immediate answer for how that's done, but mm. there are some very basic things fundamentally that should take place. Yeah. You know, no, on, listen, I'm, my, my sense of, of overall freedom of speech is, is like yours. You know, I, I'm against, generally speaking, limiting what people can say. However, if you have a situation like we've just witnessed uh, in Lancashire up there by the River Wire, where people are clambering over walls to take a picture of a dead body being removed from the river, which would not be published in the newspaper because it would simply be just too horrible to put in there. Um, you know, you know who the people are. You know, you know who's posted what. In the case of uh, these stories that the family are claiming were being told about them, uh, about, you know, allegations of, uh, of, of the, what the husband had been up to, uh, wrong allegations, as it turns out, libelous allegations, you can probably figure out who's putting those out because you can see the posts. Surely you can take those yeah. down. Surely you can police that. Well, I, I mean, I think, funny, you, you mentioned the word police. I think it's been a failure of police communication and control throughout the Nicola Bully, um, you know, story, if you like. From, from the beginning, they were not handling the media properly, not putting out the right information. Mm. And I think the police, just at the, as they did at the scene, they just allowed things to get completely out of control. And they needed a much better mechanism themselves to control the flow of information mm. and ensure that you didn't get this kind of media frenzy on social media, social media frenzy, I should say, mm. you know, that we, that, 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 that we eventually got, which I'm sure has caused much more heartache for the family than would otherwise yeah. have been the case. Oh, I'm sure that's absolutely right. We're just watching Vladimir Putin um, getting yet another standing ovation. I was under the impression that might be the end of the speech. We can, uh, we can check in with it a little bit later on, which we will do. We'll come back to Putin. Uh, we'll come back to Ben Habib as well. Uh, we'll, we'll be talking to Maggie Oliver later on as well about the police failings and also uh, what we can do about this wild west of social media, which appears to have you know, gripped the nation. And no more uh, illustration of that would you need than to see what happened uh, up in Lancashire over the past three weeks. Absolutely unbelievable scenes and incredible uh, sort of public involvement in a very, very tragic case of a missing person. Never seen anything like it. We'll talk about uh, Northern Ireland. We'll talk about uh, Joe Biden. We'll talk about uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol, of course, as well, and Brexit. Coming next on Talk TV. Online on DAB Plus, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Got a text here on 87222. I realised 15 years ago that social media anonymity was going to lead to disaster. Users should have to sign up with credit cards, etc. to prove their identities. I'm an academic computer scientist with 20 plus years working uh, in FTSE 100 tech and do not use social media. You cannot control data and the quality and integrity of it. This is unmanageable. This is the enemy of IT professionals. It's all about data control. I think there's no question um, that we have reached a point um, in the development and the rollout, if you like, of social media uh, where it has become 
the Wild West. And uh, we've seen that in the past day, few days uh, up in Lancashire because people have been posting things uh, which have been upsetting the family, uh, which are clearly um, unfortunate, to say the least, libelous in some cases, and incredibly upsetting. Um, and in, uh, also invasive and all the sorts of things um, that newspapers would not do, all the sorts of things that, that mo mainly broadcast media would not do because they're regulated against that sort of thing and also because there are standards which we would adhere to uh, here at certainly Talk TV. Um, it's absolutely ridiculous to allow ordinary individuals to be able to post anything they want without any repercussions whatsoever, which is clearly what is going on. We're talking to Ben Habib about that. We'll be talking to Maggie Oliver about it coming up in a little while as well. Lots more to do here, of course, at Talk TV. But let's talk, uh, shall we, Ben, about um, Brexit, the Northern Ireland Protocol, Article 50 and all the rest of it. What is actually um, going on inside the office of Rishi Sunak, I think, is a question for, uh, for everybody. Well, I mean, Rishi Sunak has obviously had a tilt at trying to resolve the Northern Ireland Protocol. But like his predecessors before him, he went off to Brussels, okay. or James Cleverly went off to Brussels and tried to do a deal without actually carrying with them um, the leader of the Unionist parties, and most particularly, of course, Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, who was kept in the shadows of the negotiations. And when he tipped up in Belfast, sort of relatively unannounced last Thursday to try and prevail on Sir Geoffrey to get him to buy into these new terms. Surprise, surprise, Sir Geoffrey wasn't in agreement. Mm. And the fundamental reason, um, you know, why he wasn't in agreement was because the protocol is not a matter simply of smooth trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. It's, that's a very important aspect. But more fundamentally and crucially, it's a matter of removing EU laws, i.e. foreign laws, made by a foreign legisla le legislature, uh, enforced by a foreign court from British territory. Forget about the fact that it's Northern Ireland for a moment. There is part of the United Kingdom which is under the jackboot of EU jurisdiction. Mm. Now, that is unacceptable um, at any sovereign, for any sovereign state to have. There's no way, for example, France would allow British laws to prevail over Normandy and for the British Supreme Court to be the ultimate arbiter of uh, disputes in Normandy. It just wouldn't happen. And Rishi Sunak is not even beginning to attempt to address that fundamental issue. They did talk about interceding UK courts below the European Court of Justice, but that doesn't remove the European Court of Justice's uh, authority. It just kind of masks it a bit. So without that fundamental change, without the ECJ and EU laws being removed from Northern Ireland, in other words, Northern Ireland being taken out of the jurisdiction of the EU, without that change, no deal will be acceptable to any self-respecting, proud British citizen, let alone, of course, the unionists who are perhaps the proudest of the lot in the, in the country. Yeah. Well, an awful lot of people say to me, Ben, and I'm, I'm with them, you know, surely this is a very simple uh, problem to solve. The solution is all there for all to see. Uh, it's basically to say to the EU, um, you know, Northern Ireland is part of Britain. It's not part of the EU. Like it or lump it. That's the way things are going to be. If you want to erect some kind of ridiculous border um, along, the, uh, along the island of Ireland, then you go ahead and do so. But the, well, quite frankly, there won't, be, there won't be any trade going over it because there isn't any trade that goes from the north to the south. It doesn't exist. So, you know, you do whatever you like uh, and we'll see you tomorrow. 
Well, you're absolutely right, Mike. There is a bit of trade, but you're right. It's less than 1% of the trade between the UK and the EU. Yeah. And that, that was our position at the beginning. And then for some reason, we bought this ridiculous narrative that having a customs border where, where the border already exists between two different countries, two different currencies, two different tax rates, having a customs border there would suddenly equate to going back to the troubles of the 1970s. Yeah. And it was a complete weaponization of the border issue by Remainers, by the EU, by the Republic of Ireland, in order to prevail in, in holding the UK in check, preventing us from genuinely Brexiting. And if we try to deviate now, what they've got their claws into is Northern Ireland. And they'll rip Northern Ireland out of the United Kingdom as the price of Brexit. And so we have this invidious choice between aligning the entire UK with the EU, in other words, neutering Brexit, or giving up on Northern Ireland. But as you rightly say, Mike, neither should be acceptable to any British government. They should tell the EU to get their, get themselves out mm. of Northern Ireland. The border is where it is, where the Good Friday Agreement recognises the border to be. And if they want to put up checks, it's up to them. By the way, they are now saying they can make the transmission of goods from Great Britain to Northern Ireland, uh, that border invisible. Yeah. Well, if they can make that border invisible, they can make the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic equally invisible. Right. In fact, it's much easier because, as you as you also said, Mike, there's close to very little trade, close to no, I wouldn't say no trade, but less than 1% of the mm. trade between the UK and the EU is across that border. Yeah. It's, it, it's a rounding error. It's not a big deal. And they've weaponized it. And I want to keep using the word weaponized because that's how they did it. They threatened um, the IRA would be back in action if we put a customs border on that, uh, you know, where, where, the, where the border mm. is between Northern Ireland and the Republic. And we gave into that. We should never have shameful. given into that. Because it was a shameful threat. It was a meaningless threat. And it was never, ever going to come to fruition. I mean, my experience of Ireland uh, is that the only reason people cross the border backwards and forwards uh, on a regular basis is because they work in the north and they domicile themselves in the south to pay a lot less tax. And it works rather well for them. Uh, but that's what's basically going on. There's not very much of anything else across border happening at all. Well, I mean, there's some, you know, milk and dairy products. That's the main stuff that they do. And but you're so right that it should never have been allowed to get out of hand. That Valia Varadka took a photograph of a bombed out customs post from 1972 to an EU summit. Everyone latched onto it. Mm. And Theresa May, frankly, saw it as an opportunity to keep the entire United Kingdom aligned with the EU. And Boris Johnson sadly didn't have the courage, wherewithal, foresight an ability to to ditch that 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 narrative mm. and Boris Johnson I'm afraid is the one to blame because he had an 80 seat majority he could have dealt with it he didn't do it Rishi Sunak technically has a 75 or 76 seat majority but Rishi Sunak has a party that's riven with division the conservative party cannot act as one entity at the moment as we've seen in the last 24 hours Liz Truss is speaking out against Sunak Boris Johnson is speaking out against Sunak Theresa May has her own following. That 75, 76 seat majority is illusory. Right. If Sunak tries to bring a deal through Parliament on the Northern Ireland Protocol, it will be defeated by the Conservative Party. He might get it through with Labour Party support, but can you imagine a Conservative Party Prime Minister having to rely on the Labour Party to get legislation through when he's already got a 75 seat majority? That would be the death knell for his government. Mm. And actually, 
if he was being honest, he would now call an election because he knows he can't get any meaningful legislation through Parliament. He doesn't have the command of Parliament. Well, this is the trouble. And I mean, at the end of the day, um, people are now starting to try and sort of brief journalists that, you know, uh, times have changed since 2016. Times have changed since 2019. You know, people are now more willing to accept a kind of softer Brexit. Absolute tosh, rubbish. People who want Brexit wanted it in its original form, not some kind of watered down version that Rishi Sunak thinks will be OK uh, with old um, uh, von der Leyen. You know, that's not going to be where we want to go. Mike, we, ne we never got Brexit. What it said on the ticket when we voted was, do you want the United Kingdom to leave the EU? Well, you know, we've left Northern Ireland behind. The United Kingdom has not left the EU. Yeah. Boris Johnson, in the famous Tory party manifesto, page five, said the country would leave the EU as one United Kingdom. We didn't. He said we would take back control of our laws. We didn't. We've got the ECJ and EU laws all over our statute books. He said we'd take back control of our borders. We haven't. We've partitioned the country with a border down the Irish Sea, and we can't control the border of, you know, which faces France. He said he, we'd take control of our fish. We haven't. We've got fish, French fishing boats all, of our, all over our waters, mm. electri electrifying our fish, dredging up uh, the bottom of the sea, damaging the environment terribly in order to get their, their pound of flesh, if you like, out of the United Kingdom's wonderful natural resources that are our fish. I mean, the whole thing's been a disaster. We haven't had Brexit. And to, to those people who say Brexit hasn't worked, I say we never got Brexit. And what, what isn't working is the lousy deal that Boris Johnson foisted on the country. Absolutely right. Final thought just on uh, Vladimir Putin. I think it strikes me that one of the uh, unfortunate things about being under the jackboot of Vladimir Putin is you have to sit and listen to him for uh, about two hours whenever he makes a speech. He's still going. And sadly, you've got to listen to Biden, too. And we had Biden talking about the, the importance of a sovereign, uh, terri the territorial integrity of Ukraine. And there he is briefing against the British government over Northern Ireland, yeah. trying to hide Northern Ireland off into the Republic. Biden is as bad as dreary as Putin is. <laughs> yes, but fortunately, I suppose you might say uh, not quite as ghastly. But thank you very much indeed. Not ben Habib, uh, Chairman of Brexit Watch, former MEP, of course, as well. Uh, we might check in with a bit of Putin's speech at some point, but he is still making it. Uh, he says, we are defending people's lives. That's what he's saying. Uh, we are defending our homeland, uh, which is not entirely correct. And he also says uh, that they're defending their civilization against the West, which wants to have unlimited power over the world. Yeah, well, I suppose he would say that. Coming up, uh, we are going to speak more about the case up in Lancashire uh, with Nicola Bully. So Peter Fahey going to join us, former Chief Constable of Greater Manchester. We'll find out what he makes of it all next on Talk TV. On DAB+, on the app, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We're here with you all the way through until one o'clock, of course. We'll bring you uh, all the news uh, as it happens. Vladimir Putin's speech still ongoing. If you're watching us now on Talk TV, uh, you'll see him there uh, at his podium. Uh, he's been going for well over an hour now in Moscow. Uh, this is his equivalent of a sort of State of the Union address to the Federal Assembly, which is both houses uh, of the country's parliament. Uh, we're nearing, of course, the first anniversary, uh, as many of you know, uh, of the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Vladimir Putin, of course, justifying it on the grounds that uh, he's defending Russia's homeland, uh, that he's defending Russia's civilization, and uh, that he's fighting the West, uh, which wishes to put Russia out of business, I don't think entirely. 
um, correct. But we will examine what he says coming up a little bit later on. Right now, though, let's talk to Sir Peter Fahey, former Chief Constable of Greater Manchester Police, because um, the case has now been closed, the missing uh, case of Nicola Bully. Uh, as the police said yesterday, Lancashire Police had a press conference at which they took no questions, which many people wondered about. Um, but there are still two separate investigations going on into the conduct of the police. Um, and we're going to ask now Sir Peter what he makes of it all so far. Sir Peter, very good morning to you. Good morning. Um, I mean, there's much to talk about here. Obviously, terrible news for the family. Their worst fears um, uh, kind of uh, confirmed yesterday when the body was identified as, as that of Nicola Bully. Um, do you have any sympathy for the police in this case? Uh, massive sympathy, yeah. I mean, the first thing I'd say is the case isn't closed. Um, it now goes to an inquest. The police will have to do a lot of preparation uh, for that inquest in terms of preparing, uh, you know, all the material for that. So, you know, the, the, absolutely the investigation has, has not finished. Uh, they will need to close off every particular line. Um, I think, that, you know, the police have been in a really difficult job, you know, for all sorts of reasons. This uh, case captured uh, the public imagination uh, and the press, press imagination. In some ways, this was because the police, I think, did a good job in closing off all the lines of inquiry um, around sightings of Nicola uh, because of good cooperation from local people, uh, the CCTV evidence, the mobile phone evidence. And that really, unfortunately, created this scenario in one way of, uh, you know, that she just uh, mysteriously disappeared and created this idea of a, of a mystery, which then, of course, all sorts of people piled in to try and offer right. um, scenarios and explanations. Um, I think the case does have massive implications. Um, it's not just about the press. It is about this whole issue about social media. Mm. Uh, you'll know well enough that if somebody is charged, for instance, with a crime, there are very strict uh, rules about what you can say in the press uh, and, on, and broadcast um, and really what can be said on social yeah. media. Um, now, clearly that didn't apply in a case like this, although, uh, you know, at an earlier stage it could have ended up in a criminal investigation and a trial. So um, I don't know what is the way through that. I think the police, you know, really the important thing really for the police is how they make sense of this whole new yeah. world of social media. Yes, but I think it has much wider implications for the government and, uh, you know, for how the, the, the whole criminal justice system operates, really. Yeah, no, I think so. Because you say, on the one hand, the police did a good job of sort of closing off lines of inquiry, but in a way, um, you then contradicted that by saying, but then they left this kind of mystery as to whether she could have disappeared. And I'm, I'm in no way defending the actions of certain members of the public um, because, you know, what they did was unforgivable. But that kind of vacuum was created for these people. I mean, I couldn't believe it when I saw at the weekend two men actually digging a hole in a forest saying, we believe this is where Nicola Bully's body is. You know, just kind of madness. And I, I wonder whether there isn't a different approach that, that can be taken, because you're quite right. You know, we are governed by... Uh, particular legal rules and, and regulations, but also by this, by a sense of taste and decency. You know, there are things which would not be published yeah. in, in newspapers which have been uh, published on social media. Surely you could go after those people, um, and if those people had no kind of remedy for that and you could prosecute them or you couldn't, surely social media companies must bear some responsibility for what they actually allow their platform to be used for. But I think you're absolutely right, you know, and I think, you know, the government will have to think about this very seriously. I think there's a Wild West out there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's acting against the public interest as well as causing, you know, a lot of difficulties. We wouldn't really want, you know, for instance, some, you know, a surgeon carried out a complex op operation to have to constantly come out and feed information into press and social media right. about what he or she is doing. Um, so, you know, the job of the police is not really, 
in a way, to feed the press with stories. No, the public interest is that absolutely please tell the press and the public if something serious has happened and do all they can to get the help of the press and the public for information. And, and as you say, the trouble is, if there's in effect a vacuum, the police think they're very good reasons that somebody has fallen into a river or, or, you know, and there's nothing else really to be said until that body reappears. It's a very difficult position the police are in. And, you know, as well, there's a lot of bemusement in a way in, in, in policing about they know that every single day hundreds of people go missing. Mm. There are a number of other cases around the country where families are in complete agony um, as to what's happened to their loved one. And it's very difficult in those cases for the police to get any interest at all. That may be the reality mm. of the press and, you know, what's what gets that public interest. Uh, and that press interest, but it caused a real challenge for for the police. And I do think, you know, the job, the police, the job absolutely is to concentrate on what is the investigative strategy, you know, what is their expertise and experience, um, you know, telling them, and if any way, try not to get deflected by what is the latest press story or, or, or social media um, story, and just concentrate on doing all they can to, you know, to find the, the person and to get a resolution for the family. Yes. One of the things people are saying to me this morning about all of this, and everybody's got an opinion, of course, because that's now the world in which we live. Um, many people saying, yeah, but let's not forget, it wasn't the police that actually found her body. Uh, it was members of the public. And so, you know, why is it that the police didn't find the body? I know that that may all come out in the inquest and there will be investigations as to what the cause of death was and all of that and the time of death. But, you know, it is a bit unfortunate for the police in this case that they didn't find the body. No, I, you know, I don't, I don't think so. You know, I, I'm, I'm not an expert in this. I've had some experience of what happens when um, bodies fall into uh, uh, rivers, particularly those with tidal flows, you know, particularly the River Thames. Um, and how it often is extremely difficult and takes a period of time before that body reappears for all issues to do with currents and all sorts of other things. Um, you know, and there is only a limited number of, of, you know, staff that the police have who've got the expertise to go into rivers and, and, and find people. And of course, mm. in this case, a private company came along and still couldn't find the body. You know, so I, I can understand to some degree why the public say that, but I don't think it reflects the reality of, uh, you know, as I say, particularly what happens when a body uh, falls into a river um, and how the body itself reacts. Again, that's this is not the right time to go into all that detail. Mm. But, uh, you know, I do think that criticism of the police unfair. And ultimately, though, you know, the, the, the person who's put in place, the office that's put in place to oversee this is the local police and crime commissioner. You know, they have been elected by local people. They are supposed to be overseeing Lancashire police. Um, you know, I don't think we've heard a great deal from that. that I'm not sure that system is working at the moment. Uh, and the focus then comes on to the senior detective. Um, you know, so I, so I think, you know, as you say, there are a number of broader issues about this case. But I think the key one really is that whole issue about social media yeah. and how we try and, you know, allow the freedom and all the benefits we get from social media. But how in cases like this, it can be controlled, as I say, in the way it would be controlled if somebody had been charged with an offence. Yes, I think that's right. But, I mean, the other problem, I suppose, for the police in general, uh, more broadly, and, and specifically with Lancashire Police, I mean, they're in special measures, uh, as are Greater Manchester Police, as is Scotland Yard. Uh, you know, there's an awful lot of problems in the police forces around the country. I think six are in special measures. Um, what do you think's gone wrong with the police service? Number one, uh, Greater Manchester is not in so special measures. They've come out. I think the current chief constable would want me to, uh, to say that. Oh, did they? When uh, was that? Uh, a few months ago, yeah, okay. yeah, because they have uh, massively improved their arrest rate and detection rate. No, I, th I think there is a really serious issue about policing. And, you know, that would take a long time to talk about it. I think one of the basic issues is they don't have the tools to do the job. 
you know, we know there's a huge amount of crime, particularly internet crime, which they just do not have the tools to actually investigate and, and to resolve. Um, you know, we still operate in a system with 51 separate police forces, even though that a lot of that crime no longer follows geographical boundaries. On issues like dealing with women, we know there is a huge issue around confidence, but also a very, very low prosecution rate through the through the case. Uh, and I think there is, as you know, you know, a basic problem as well that the police feel at the moment, you know, pretty low morale. There's a lot of anger about this case. They feel that Lancashire police were very unfairly criticised, particularly the senior detective. And the trouble with that is that it creates a sort of siege mentality in policing where they feel that they are not appreciated. Our policing is very accountable. We're not like lots of other countries where if you criticise the police, you'll get arrested and may, may not be seen again. You know, we have a very accountable police force. I'm not, I'm not sure that's up. something that we should be proud of. I mean, you would expect that that would be the case, wouldn't you? Yeah, no, it's, but, it is, you know, it, it is the case. But, you know, if, if we have that system where the police quite rightly are criticised and held accountable, we also have to have a bit of a balance which says we understand, you know, the day-to-day -day realities of what police officers are dealing with mm. uh, and the challenges they face. Um, alongside, obviously, they've had a huge cut in their numbers and we have about half the number of officers per head of population as countries like France, Spain um, and Italy. So I think, you know, the police need to be criticised when they do things wrong. But there is no public interest if we end up with a police force that feels demotivated, that feels unappreciated and, 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 and misunderstood um, because that just means that good people will leave and good people won't want to join. And that's not good for any of us. OK, good to talk to you. Uh, so Peter Fahey, thank you very much indeed. Former Chief Constable of Greater Manchester, pointing out actually Greater Manchester Police no longer in special measures. Well, that's one that's out. Uh, there's still plenty of others in, at least five, I think, and Lancashire Police, obviously one of them. We'll take your call soon. We want to hear from you as to how we police the Wild West of social media. What on earth is the answer? Uh, Tyler says this, um, blaming social media companies for how people use their platforms is like complaining about what people say on the telephone and blaming the phone companies. Well, I mean, if you started breaking the law by telephoning people uh, and threatening them and doing all sorts of things which were illegal on a phone, presumably the phone company would have the power to cut your phone off, wouldn't they? You would think. So the same should apply here, shouldn't it? This is Talk TV. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We're talking about the wild west of social media. We're talking about the influence that somebody uh, can have on social media uh, without really having any knowledge, without really having any responsibility, without really having uh, any right, in a way, uh, to invade somebody's privacy, uh, to invade a police investigation, to completely and utterly uh, hoodwink members of the public who would be reading what it is that they posted on social media without any care uh, for the law, without any care for uh, good taste and decency without any care for all of the things that people in our positions here at Talk TV have to adhere to. And it's nothing to do with, you know, the fascistic rule of law in which you're not allowed to say anything. I've got this from David who says, be careful what you wish for. Who makes the rules? Do you trust the police? How long before you aren't allowed to say things because it is contrary to the government's views? Oh, but that already happened with COVID. Welcome to China. Well, it didn't actually. You know, yes, there were people in government who wanted to restrict what we said. Yes, there were people in government who even were monitoring 
what we were saying and were keeping a list of what people were saying and keeping a list of names. It didn't actually stop people from saying the things that they said. But this is a far different argument. This is not any longer about adhering to government policy or not upsetting the government. I mean, we've just been watching Vladimir Putin, uh, who's been talking now for not far off two hours, I think, um, in uh, apparatchiks are standing there applauding, standing, giving uh, ovations to the only man that they can see as a leader because they're not allowed to really to vote for anybody else. You know, that's not the situation we are in. And quite frankly, I think it's important to delineate between, you know, legal matters, police matters, you know, investigations into uh, uh, the Missing Missing Persons Act, or if there's somebody has been killed, uh, if there's some crime that's been committed, you know, why on earth should social media be governed differently from the way um, the, the mainstream and regular media is? It doesn't make any sense. And it has to stop. It's as simple as that. You cannot have people just running wild, making speculative posts on social media, making libelous statements about people. It can't be right, surely to heavens. You can have opinions and you can have uh, all manner of freedoms that you can use to actually um, illustrate things that you wish to say. But what you shouldn't be doing um, is things that cannot be done in any other form. I think that's where it's wrong. 0344 499 1000. It's an interesting debate. We want to hear your voices on it, please. So we will come to you very soon. Right now, though, let us talk to Andrew Gilligan, senior fellow policy exchange and former political aide to Boris Johnson. He's got a paper out right now, uh, a report into the statues around London. Um, and basically, he's discovered that there is a secret Scotland Yard list of what's called contentious statues um, because they are prone to attack from certain individuals who have attacked them in the past. Amongst them is the Cenotaph um, and Winston Churchill in Parliament Square. Andrew, very good morning to you. Morning. Fascinating, uh, uh, this secret. Uh, it was good when you find a secret Scotland Yard <laughs> list. What, uh, I mean, I can sort of see the logic of it, but, it, but it's sort of slightly unnerving when you find out that when they say things like this, you wonder whether they're going to be putting, you know, they're going to erect sort of a wooden box around these statues. It's a kind of reflection. You were just talking about the reflection of sort of the madness that grips social media, yeah. and I think the reflection of the kind of madness that grips protest in this country. If the if the the cenotaph, which is a memorial to mm. the people who saved us from from fascism, can be described as in any way contentious, yeah. but it is um, because it has been obviously been attacked in the past, um, and uh, and it's 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 a sad state of affairs. Mm. It really is, and I mean. With what um, sort of you know aim did they put this list together? Is it is it simply to alert uh, members of the of, of, of the Metropolitan Police that these are places that if there is going to be a march past, they should perhaps protect them? I mean, we've seen in the past, haven't we, um, protection being put around Winston Churchill statue. That's right. Yeah, I think that's par partly what it is. I mean, they've, they've they've done some notes on the individual statues, many of which are, to put it mildly, slanted and and selective. Although mm -hmm. to be fair, I think that might just reflect the reasons why protesters might attack them rather than the Met's own view. But, right. you know, Winston Churchill, one, for instance, says um, he's accused of murdering three million Indians in the Bengal famine, which mm. is just historical nonsense. Mm. Um, you know, any accusation of del deliberate murder against Churchill in Bengal just, just can't be supported by the evidence. Includes a number of quotations that uh, from supposedly from Churchill that, that actually he may not have said, that were never actually documented as being said by him. That That's the kind of thing. But, you know, that is the kind of sort of semi-fake information that's going around out there in the in the in the wonderful world of the uh, of the internet and social media yeah. about historical figures like Churchill who was of course voted 
rightly the greatest Britain of yes. all time. By the well, public. unfortunately, this is the left at work, isn't it? You know, they, they, they create these narratives and they repeat them often enough so that people actually uh, assume that they're facts when they're not facts at all. And you can't look at history, um, you know, in a sort of matchbox. You can't go, well, that's obviously what happened. All these people died. It must be his fault over there. Well, no, that's not really how it works. But, but I mean, who sees this list? Um, and, and what will, do you think, be the kind of uh, the consequences? And what else is on it, apart from Churchill and the Cenotaph? There's about 70 statues on it, most of them in, in Westminster. Um, some of the usual suspects, Clive, Havelock. Nelson's on there. Nelson, and again, the, the only thing they say about Nelson is that he, he went to the Caribbean. He knew slave, slave owners, which is, a, again, a slightly selective account of Nelson. <laughs> career and, and, and what Nelson did, again, to save this country from foreign... Well, no mention of Trafalgar, even though he's in no Trafalgar Square. No mention of, uh, of, of, um, of any of his other achievements. And, and, and I think, um, uh, you know, uh, the clues in the name of the square, guys. But, um, but, yeah, right. the, but you know, it, 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 I, I, to go back to what you were saying before, I, I'm not sure there's much we can do about the kind of rubbish that gets talked on social media. I just think we have to start teaching people, mm. maybe teaching children, teaching in school, um, to to start thinking about the stuff they read. I, I don't think there's any way we're ever going to somehow ban this kind of nonsense from the public arena or stop it. I think we just have to teach children to be resilient to it. And 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 and, and um, yeah, but and, sadly, and I think I mean you make a very you make a very good point, and I agree with you. But I think sadly, it's already happening in reverse. You know, kids yeah. are already being taught in school the stuff that you've just told me. You know, so so they they they're being told actually. That the, the the fixed and historic narrative about Britain is wrong yeah. because it was an yeah. imperialist, racist, horrible empire uh, which did no good at all in any part of the world ever, um, and therefore everything to do with it uh, should be somehow kicked away from uh, 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 right. Britain's history. I mean, maybe what we should do is take a leaf out of Nelson's book and just put everything up as high as Nelson's column, and then you know, good luck, uh, you know, <laughs> defacing it. <laughs> There was there was one lefty columnist who actually um, Afwa Hirsch who actually supported um, pulling it down at one point. So yeah. you know um, e even the columnist. Ghastly say, woman. The most important thing here is nuance. Um, that's what's missing from the Met list. That's what's missing from the social media nonsense. You know. So sure, Churchill was not a hundred percent good guy. Churchill yeah. did say some pretty iffy things about people of other races, although mm. not frankly out of line with what people of his generation thought about people of other races generally. Um, you know, Nelson was not a hundred percent Simon Pure. Nobody is. No. Um, but but you know, what's missing is nuance. What's missing is saying, look, this guy did some good things, mm. did some bad things, did said some good things, did some bad things. Let's look at the overall balance and come to a judgment. Mm. Same with the British Empire. The British Empire was not wholly bad, it was not wholly good. Um, no. you know, and, and this difference about a view about where the balance stands, but it's not hundred percent either way. Mm. No, of course not. But also I take issue with people like Sadiq Khan and, and any commission. Uh, that he has put together. He's put together the Commission on Statues and Street Names and stuff. You know, London does not belong to Sadiq Khan. You know, he's like a football manager. He's there for a bit. You know, he can't go around changing everything just because he doesn't like it. And I think we have to be very careful about what we allow these people to get away with. But listen, a great report, Andrew. I've got to run. Thank you very much indeed. Andrew Gilligan, a senior fellow at the Policy Exchange, former political aide to Boris Johnson, of course. We've got much more to do. Uh, we're going to be talking to Maggie Oliver in the next hour. We're going to talk to Laura Dodsworth, who's here as well. This is Talk TV. Fast Talk, Street Talk, Mike Graham. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid Talk, Hot Talk. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On your mobile, on your wavelengths, Talk Radio and Talk TV. 
Good morning. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We've got an awful lot to talk about. Laura Dodsworth joins us coming up in a little while. She's going to be telling us why she thinks the world has gone completely stark, staring bonkers mad. She might even have a few reasons to explain how it actually happened. We'll also ask her uh, about the problem with social media, as we've been discussing this morning, the wild west of social media. Some people uh, are put a kicking back against me saying, hey, hang on a minute, the social media is meant to be a place where the public get to air their views. Well, that's fine. Uh, but what you don't get to do, in my view anyway, uh, is be completely and utterly irresponsible, be completely and utterly, um, you know, without regard to the law, without regard to the feelings and the dignity and the sensitivity of certain subjects or certain families or certain people, specifically with regard to the Nicola Bully case, some of the things that were posted on social media were quite frankly horrendous. Now, if you're going to tell me you can't stop that from happening because people are just not very nice, well, that's one argument, but I just think that there should be more responsibility born. Perhaps Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. By the carriers of the information, to wit, uh, the independent social media companies, TikTok, Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram. You know, we hear all the time about harms being done to people one way or another, either because on Instagram, um, vulnerable young women uh, can see lots of pictures uh, of people with eating disorders. Uh, they can develop an eating disorder. They can uh, uh, develop all sorts of psychological difficulties as a result of becoming addicted to social media. Uh, people on Twitter who have been hounded uh, and have killed themselves as a result of the bullying that they had online. People who have watched uh, their friends and family ridicule them on Facebook. And quite frankly, some of the stuff, as I said, that was going on with Nicola Bully uh, over the course of the last three weeks, people filming themselves on TikTok down by the site where she was believed to have gone missing, people trying to film the body being removed from the side of the river. I mean, just incredibly awful stuff. And you wouldn't expect any genuine news organisation to take part in anything like that. And yet... If you do it on social media, there is no problem at all. Let's talk to Maggie Oliver, former Greater Manchester Police Detective, of course, also the founder of the Maggie Oliver Foundation. Uh, Maggie, a very good morning to you. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Mike. Nice to be here. Yeah, nice to see you. I mean, a terrible story, this. I mean, you can only have incredible sympathy for Nicola Bully's family. But but specifically, I just wanted to ask you, before we talk about the conduct of the police, um, what do we do? about this social media kind of revolution? Because it has, I mean, this is, is, is like no other case I've ever seen, I don't know about you, where so yeah. many people became kind of almost personally involved in it 
who felt that it was all right for them to go to um, the site of the, of, of, the, of the place where the woman had gone missing and start kind of nosing around as if they were detectives. And I even saw at the weekend somebody digging up the woods nearby saying, well, we've been we've had a tip that, you know, somebody's buried here. Other people went into a house nearby and said they wanted to search it. I mean, surely there's got to be a way to stop this. I don't know um, what you do really, Mike, because I think I mean, I am a big I'm a really big believer in freedom of speech. Um, but people who would do these kinds of things when they know that there is a grieving family there, mm. I don't think any kind of reasoning or um appeals to their better nature would would have any effect and i really don't know what the answer is social media um and the internet is, is a fact of life and it's not going anywhere it's here to stay and i think um i don't know i think you you know as police officers you can prevent some of it you can seal off a scene you mm. can protect the area where this has happened um but i really don't know how you can uh, prevent people who have got it in their head that they're going to, you know, um, cause problems. Uh, if they're not breaking the law, there's very, I don't think there's very little you mm. can do about it. I mean, if they're surely posting things on social media uh, which are libelous, which is what the family have been claiming, that, you know, people, people were making all sorts of allegations against Nicola's uh, partner, um, you know, surely that can be changed. Surely somebody can take responsibility for saying to, to the social media company, you know, that's libelous. Uh, if people are going to sue that individual, you should not be putting it up on your on your uh, network. Yeah, if it's libelous, um, then yes, I would say so. But I think what I would also have to say, Mike, is that you know, I as a police officer, I was also a family liaison officer, and um, I dealt with um, a lot of murders and a lot of sudden deaths. Mm. So the, the you know, it's it's always a heartbreaking and a sensitive time for a family. Um, what really concerned me about this case is obviously a lot of questions that we still don't have the answers to. You know, um, the, the big thing that, that struck me, though, was the, the disclosure uh, from the police that uh, Nicola had apparently got alcohol problems and she was going through the menopause. In a way, I think that sent out a signal that it was open... It was open um, you know, open season, it, it, yeah. Yeah, open season on Nicola. Um, and I think it was completely and utterly inappropriate. And, you know, added to the pain of the family um, by kind of blackening a name, the mm. implicate, you know, and it, it reminds me, Mike, as well of, you know, many of the girls that, that I've dealt with over the years mm. have been, um, you know, the, 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 the terminology has been that they are in some way responsible yeah. for their own. Use. You know, right. they've made a lifestyle choice or they shouldn't be out at night or mm. they shouldn't be doing what they're doing. And I read into this a, a kind of, um, you know, judging the victim mm. um, that she was in some way responsible for what had happened to her before they even knew what had actually yeah. happened to her. So, you know, when you've got the authorities behaving in that way, you know, the example that goes out to the public is perhaps that, you know, it's all right at the end of yeah. the day to say you think is OK but it's not right. No. Um, and the police um, seem to have got almost everything in this case wrong, don't they? I mean, you know, from the beginning, they don't seem to have really known. Yeah. It's almost as though they didn't understand how big the case was going to become, how 
focused the public were going to be on it and the media as well and it almost as if they yeah. didn't they weren't prepared for it you know in the last press conference where uh, yesterday they didn't even take any questions uh, and the chief um, uh, police officer who was in charge of the previous press conference didn't even show up I mean it was just all looks like a shambles yeah I mean I think they were unprepared um, very much so and you know there's a few things that that, that really happen I, I used to deal with it when I first joined the police, as a, a, uni, a you know a new uniformed police officer, you often get sent to the missing from homes. Mm. We used to call them FHs, and you know the they were all all the kids that you would go and take the reports or were all high risk missings. But I, I get the feeling very clearly from this case that um, somebody's turned up at the scene, seen the dog, seen the phone, uh, and immediately jumped to the conclusion that she's fallen into the river. Mm. Um, and they, you know, they haven't secured the scene. I wonder why they didn't find the body sooner. Um, there, there are so many unanswered questions, which I'm sure in, in due course will be answered. But it seems that um, in many ways, this investigation has been pushed by the media attention. Um, I mean, I know of a case, for instance, right at this moment in uh, Boothstown in Manchester, where a young, um, where a man has fallen into the canal. Now, that hasn't hit the media, it hasn't hit the press. So, you know, you have to wonder whether um, the investigation was driven by the, the, the media pressure or whether anything would have happened if that hadn't mm. been focused on it. Um, I, you know, I just, I think the one good thing to come out of this, though, Mike, is that, you know, the family do now have some closure in that they have got Nicola back. Yeah. Um, because the thought of not knowing where your daughter or your your mum ended up would have been absolute torture for the rest of their lives. So yeah. I hope the autopsy will give some more answers. Um, I do hope she fell in the river, but I, you know I, I don't. I really don't know yeah. um, why it took so long to find her. I, I, I just can't understand. You know, if they had teams of underwater um, search teams searching the river for a period of three weeks. I, I just don't understand why they didn't find her sooner. I know. But, and I mean, it doesn't help either that, in fact, they never found her, that they that she was found by members of the public in the end, in a place which appears to have been fairly much in, in plain no. view. So even, you know, even if you take the view that um, the body kind of surfaced in some way latterly, um, you would have hoped that the police were carrying regular patrols down the river a mile from where she went, supposed to have gone missing, but they weren't. Yeah, I would have thought they'd be doing an inch-by-inch inch search of the river. I could understand, and I'm not an underwater search expert, but, you know, I did work in the police, and I would have thought if if, if Nicola had gone out to sea, I could understand why they struggled to find her. Yeah. What I can't get my head around is why she, you know, she was only, you know, a short distance away. I think it was just less than a mile um, in, a, in a contained area of a river, Um I don't know why they didn't find her. I, I mean, I've heard all kinds of speculation, but I think we have to wait for the results of the autopsy um, to see, you know, indeed whether she did have alcohol in the system, mm. but I mean, don't even know whether that would still be able to be found after all this time yeah. in the water. Um, I just think the whole case raises a lot of concerns about, you know, processes, procedures, um, whether, you know, lines of inquiry have been followed or whether this hypothesis that she fell in the river was what um, w was taken from day one and mm. it, it prevented any inquiries being done in the first three to four days until they brought an SIO in. 
uh, a senior investigating officer yeah. in. And there's a lot um, of rare criticism for the police as well because they apparently turned down help from other police forces around the country. The Metropolitan Police uh, is one. Really? Um, and apparently they just, you know, didn't, they just wanted to go it alone. But, but I, I mean, they're, they're already in special measures. I don't know what you can do about the next investigation. I don't know what they find. I mean, you've, you've seen, you know, police authorities and police investigations before not really coming to very much. I mean, do you have any faith that this one will? You know what, Mike, you know, I'm, I'm probably, um, I'm very biased because, you know, I have seen so many failures. Well, in you've got a good reason to be biased, I think, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I have seen, you know, incompetence, I've seen cover-ups, I've seen corruption, and, and I see a lack of trust in the police um, throughout the country. Many forces are in special measures, and this really doesn't give the public any more confidence that when the chips are down that you can rely on them to to go through what are fairly uh, routine and um, common sense procedures you know this doesn't really fill me with any more confidence than um, than I already have and you know I've seen so many failures Mike it's um, every day we are contacted by people being failed by the police Uh, so I you know, I'm sad for the family. Um, I feel for the way that Nicola's name has been blackened. I think that that is really highly... Um, it's awful, isn't it? It's just awful. It's awful. And if that was my daughter, um, or, you know, yeah, I think about the, the, you know, the two children, this will never... Everybody who ever talks about Nicola will think of her in... Mm. in of having involved the police that she you know she was allegedly an alcoholic that she had you know problems with uh, the menopause well you know for me this strikes me again of, of like misogyny yeah um you know when i left the police as, as you already know mike i was you know um accused by the chief constable at the time of being having become too emotionally involved i was bereaved because my husband had died mm. i'd lost my little granddaughter um, now, I wonder, you know, if it had been a male officer, would they have said something, yeah. you, you know, um, similar? And, and likewise, if Nicola had been a young man, would they have undermined his credibility mm. by, I, don't know, I can't think of anything similar. No. But, you know, I do find it really, um, I, I find it shocking yeah. that there would be such personal information about um, a young woman who... Um, had disappeared uh, in a way suggesting that it was her own fault mm. that that's what I took yes. out of it no I, I absolutely th- agree with you I think that's entirely what was the result whether they intended that to be the result I don't know Maggie we've got to go thank you very much indeed Maggie Oliver a former Greater Manchester police detective and of course founder of the Maggie Oliver foundation um how about this from sarah in west sussex mike just one thing on the bully case peter folding volunteered his company services during the same week that his book was published my thoughts on this don't seem to fit the narrative apparently but he was very quick to cover his backside yesterday saying that the river did not include the riverside and the reeds etc and that was a police search area i'm not a detective or an expert in this field so i will not put my thoughts forward other than to say that if nicholas body had been in that location for the entire three weeks someone would have found her r.i.p nicola yeah it's such a sad story um but one that bears an awful lot of examination not just because of what happened but because of how what happened was managed by the police and how the public reacted of course 
as well. Coming up, uh, we're going to be joined, of course, by Laura Dodsworth, who's here to talk about a great many things, including the social media revolution, but also how has the world ended up in the place that it is? This is Talk TV. Online on DAB Plus, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Laura Dodsworth is here. Uh, very good morning to you. Good morning. Nice to see you. Uh, we've got lots to do, including why the world has gone mad. I'm not sure how much time we need for that, but um, we'll give it as much time as we can. <laughs> we're still here um, every week talking about it, Mike. Absolutely right. Um, I mean, one of the things for me uh, that we've been talking about this morning, about uh, in the wake of the, the terrible uh, story of Nicola Bully, um, is the behaviour of, of individuals, the behaviour of people. I've never come across anything like it before. I've covered you know, many criminal um, investigations, loads of, you know, missing person stories, murder hunts and all the rest of it. But I've never seen the public behaving like they did uh, on this occasion for the last three weeks where people were turning up, searching houses that they thought that she might be missing in, yeah. digging up the forest because they thought she was buried there. I mean, it's just an extraordinary outpouring on, on things like TikTok and, and, and Twitter yeah. of, of, of people's stories, you know, going to the site where she went missing, filming themselves. I mean, it's just bizarre to I, me. I think, I think there's a danger, though, in thinking of social media as being the the force to blame mm. for this human behaviour. Human behaviour is to blame for human mm. behaviour. Now, look, think about people... I know it's a different thing, but think about people who go on Jack the Ripper tours around East London. You know, mm. people have an appetite for understanding the macabre. Think yeah. about the hysteria when Princess Diana died. People take deaths of especially, you know, young, attractive women very seriously. Mm. I think the issue here was a very strange and what felt like suspicious release of information by the police. Mm. And so then people want to... They want to work out what's going on. That doesn't mean they should do it, and mm. I'm not excused. Using it, but what social media does is accelerate the response. Yeah. It means information is shared very fast. People share information that generates an emotional response. Some of the responsibility for that will lie with social media companies mm. who are basically building platforms that are fueled on emotion. Mm. And they want resharing, they want engagement. So the algorithms are all geared up towards that. But the problem really is human behaviour. And we, we shouldn't be always trying to censor and control the mechanisms that allow human behaviour to flourish. Instead, we should try to understand it. I think the deeper thing here is really how the police released information. We don't really know yet why they were talking about mm. alcohol and perimenopause. No. But what that did was make people suspicious. Yeah. My own thought about that, just briefly, because we've got a lot to talk about this morning, is that I think it was a sort of a double Woke um, reverse ferret, which doesn't make a lot of sense to a lot of people, I, su I suppose. But what I mean by that is that because they're so desperate to make out that they're aware of all sorts of people's individual struggles, that they kind of use them because in their mind it's an excuse for something that might have happened which would suggest that it wasn't the individual's fault. So therefore they thought by mentioning the menopause that somehow that might be helpful to people who were suffering from the menopause because they thought that if we get this out in the open it will be clear that sometimes the effects of a menopause and people with menopausal problems could be this. I have no, I think, I have no I think idea. that can be the only explanation. If that's not the explanation, I don't know what is. Well, I, I don't really want to comment on something I think the police shouldn't have commented right. on, but we don't really know at this stage why they released the information mm. they did. There may have been good reasons for it. The reason you just mentioned is not a good reason. No, it really isn't. But um, it's it's difficult really to comment on it because it's it's sure. a live case. No, I get that. Um, and, I, and I certainly wouldn't want the family to be in any way beleaguered by anything that, that I would say. Mm. 
Um, yeah. Let's talk about the world but and another, it's... Another thing on social media, yeah. like the kind of the craziness about it, you know, do you know, have you ever found you're blocked by somebody who you've never interacted with? Yes. You know, you look at their account for the first time, yeah. oh gosh, that's funny, mm. I'm blocked. Yes, happens all the time to me actually because somebody will send me something and say, have you seen this? And I'll be, oh, well no, I can't see it because somebody, whoever it is that's done it, has blocked me. And I've never even, I didn't even know who they were sometimes. Right. So this happened to me this week. And the reason I'm mentioning it to you now is that you were actually given to me as part of the reason why I might be blocked. Oh, yeah. But of course, just like my previous comment on about social media, it's not really your fault. It's the person who blocked me's fault. Mm. So this is James O'Brien, who's a yeah. journalist at LBC. And I well, noticed... he says he's a journalist. I'm not sure that qualifies. <laughs> Stop. This is why we're both he's in a... trouble. No, he's a former <laughs> showbiz reporter for the Daily Express. An unsuccessful one. So I have never interacted with him on Twitter so far as I'm aware or right. remember. I don't think I've ever really commented about him. But I found this week I was commented because I, I blocked because I, I went back a couple of tweets to mm. see the origin of something and I noticed I was blocked. And um, I put out a question on Twitter. Why would I be blocked from somebody by somebody I've never interacted with? And a couple of people suggested to me that what he might be doing is using that mass blocking software yes, that preemptively blocks lots of people, mm. including all of your followers. Yes. So I just thought that was quite funny that other people have told me that. may yeah. have decided to block all of your followers and what I want to say the point I want to make is I think this is a terrible misuse of social media because what it does is encourage people to live more and more in their own yep. echo chambers so their own ideas are reinforced personally I actually quite like following people I don't agree with yes not too much because it's uncomfortable yeah but some to get that balance if you block somebody because you think they might like somebody you don't like. You're really narrowing your universe in mm. quite a dangerous way, especially if you're a journalist. I like to invade other people's echo chambers <laughs> and leave a message. Just like an echo does. In yeah, fact. exactly right. And then, you know, you can figure out what I mean by that later on. Anyway, let's talk about the three psychological principles that you say will explain everything that's going on. I'm yeah. fascinated by this. Absolutely, thank you. Well, the reason I want to talk about this is um, as a new article on my Substack by a psychologist called um, Patrick Fagan. He's actually the co-author uh, of my new book, Free Your Mind. Yes, and which you can now talk about. I can now bit. talk about. We've been saying I've got a new book out. It's out in June. You can pre-order it now. But the reason I I, um, I asked him to write for me is that in 2022, so much weird stuff happened. It's almost as though weird got exponential probably didn't even start in 2022 mm. but there were a few really big trends last year and these trends don't just happen to us they happen to us because of our human psychology mm. and it's really useful to understand the biases behind trends so that you can understand how you're exploited one was the medical assistance in in medical assistance in dying mm. program in canada effectively yeah. it's euthanasia yeah. and that has grown so much. I think people will be shocked to know that over 30,000 people... In 30, this 30, 30, over 30, 30, Yeah, over 30,000 people have been euthanized in, in Canada. and Over what period? Totally, in total. Few, in total since it started. That is so a lot just, though, isn't it? It's just a few years. Yeah. And it's, it's been growing It's like really the entire fast. population of Hailsham. If you think about it in that term. Poor Hailsham. I know. That's a terrifying thought. I don't know why I thought of Hailsham, but it just happens to be that size. <laughs> Does it? Yeah. So um, what, this, what this shows is the slippery slope effect. You, you bring something in, maybe for a good reason, mm. but then it gets used for something else and then something else. Mm. And where's it going to end up going? And, and we really need to think about how this slippery slope effect can be used for things that we, you know, we may not want them to go where they end up going. Mm. The, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Think about masks. They came in with um, 
literally no evidence. Yeah. As the Cochrane review now shows, at first of all, it's like, oh, wear them on public transport, just public yeah. transport. It's to get used to the yeah, idea. Yeah. Before you know it, they're everywhere. They're in schools, they're mm. on the streets. They're, they're in cinemas, they're in supermarkets, they're everywhere. It's the slippery slope yeah. effect. It's a foot in the door. You get used to something, then it, it snowballs. So the um, euthanasia programme was probably intended for a smaller group of people. Now we hear that it's been... Um, suggested for the mentally ill, that's paused at the moment. It's been offered to veterans who are struggling with PTSD coming out of the army. It has snowballed. Mm. Effectively, you could almost say that people are dying because they're poor, because people who are in poverty and have seriously bad life chances are using this programme almost as a get-out mm. for where they find themselves. I'd say it's being misused. Yeah, That's why people say it's a bad thing, you know, because whenever we have this conversation about, you know, the right to die... Um, which I think should exist in situations where people wish to do it. Yeah. But care, but clearly that is an issue, isn't it, where um, you have to be very careful about how it's done and how you access it and whether you check who's using it for what purpose mm. and that somebody isn't benefiting from it, for example. So that's the slippery slope effect. Mm. Another one is the pro-innovation bias. People really like new, sparkly, oh, yeah. exciting things. Yeah. Look at how we were all talking about chat GPT. Yes, Although not in a good way, funnily enough. It came to my attention because Aaron raised it once a few weeks ago when we did it, um, and I had never heard of it. Um, and the only things I've now read about it since then have been negative, pretty much. Well, that's because our human bias makes us like new sparkly things, but it also leads programmers to program chat GPT with bias, mm. with ideological and political bias. So the tool is still in its infancy. It's pretty amazing, actually, considering it's so new. Mm. But it's biased. Um, and then the third, the third bias to be aware of that drives your behaviour and leads to trends taking off is norms. We really like being in groups. We like being in the herd. If you think I about don't. it, well, we, you and I don't. I we're, don't. we're natural I can't rebels. Think of worse. We're natural rebels. We're the outliers. We're the gadflies. We're the annoying ones. But the fact is that these norms are very useful. For instance, mm. you want to eat the berries on the bush that everyone else eats. You don't want to eat the berries that no one else eats. You know, it's easier to swim with the tide than swim away from the tide. But this can be used almost to exploit people because because advertisers, governments, mm. propagandists know that we will follow this instinct oh, yeah. to well, be in a herd. Well, people don't wish to be seen as not following the crowd, do they? They don't like to be um, out there on their own because they feel vulnerable. They don't feel mm. as if they've got anybody to protect them. So That's right. And of course, it's very uncomfortable. You know, if eight out of ten cats prefer whiskers, that must be the right food for your cat, mm. obviously. So you'll go for informational conformity. You also don't want to be excluded by your peers. You want um, other people who you see as high status to look up to you. Yes. That's been used with regards to insects. We've talked about insect eating before. But this is why last year you saw it on programmes like The Great British Bake Off. You saw articles about it. You've seen celebrities popping insect delicacies mm. into their mouths. And we've been told that two billion people around the world eat insects. That figure's really, really dubious by the way yeah they're but birds it's to actually make, they're not it's people to make you, it's to make you think that lots of people do it yeah. so you should try it too but the you know is, I'm so far ahead of this curve because I was eating insects back in New York in the 80s you know when I was once invited to the New York Entomological Society dinner which I didn't realise was all about insects because I didn't really know what entomology was um, and it turns out that it was, a, it was a lovely beautiful townhouse in sort of up upper east side Manhattan and all of these characters and this it's sort of insect um, buffet um, and it wasn't until I got back in the cab on the way home and started to feel a bit queasy. I was like, hmm, because I'd had, you know, they had crickets that were sort of pan fried and they tasted a bit like trail mix. 
you know, it was it was all Disgusting. fine. Disgusting. But, you know, it wasn't Disgusting. something that I was going to... It was the same as eating crocodiles, as I was concerned. It was just a one-off. I wasn't going to do it as a, as, a, as a habit, you know. And suddenly now it's a thing. OK, so you liked it when you were a rebel. You feel less inclined when they're telling you that everyone's well, doing Well, no, I it. didn't particularly like it. I did it because it was, a, it was a job. I was asked to go and cover it, you know. So I went and did it as a journalistic enterprise. Um, and it wasn't until I was, as I say, I had some slow worm pate. Oh, my God. Goodness, right. this sounds um, revolting. What is slow worm pate? Do you know you can get pate made with geese liver or pig yeah, liver? It's yeah. a lot tastier. Yeah, no, I agree. It's not oh. very nice, but it wasn't. But it tasted all right, and I was eating it. And suddenly, I'd had a couple of Heinekens with it, and as I was sitting in the cab on the way home, I was like, Ooh, "That wasn't a very good idea." No. Anyway, so I'm never eating insects again. That's for sure, unless I get trapped on some desert island somewhere. The thing is, you know your mind. I, I know my mind quite well. We all want to know our mind. Everybody wants to be an individual. They want to know their mind. If you want to know your mind, you need to understand how people can control your mind. Yeah. And they will control your mind using basic human psychological biases. Mm. So it's important to understand It is them. very important to understand. It's a good thing to talk about. Let's talk about controlling people's minds. How about controlling people's words and roll dull? Oh, my goodness. I'm so upset about this. Mm. Now, I know that Peter Hitchens mentioned it yesterday on your show, but I said to your producers, please, please. Well, it's a big story. Let well, me I talk discovered about yesterday what nobody knew, uh, as it turns out, and it's the Roald Dahl estate actually sold the rights to all of yeah. his works to Netflix. So it's Netflix, actually, who have allowed this to happen. And Puffin. Puffin have allowed it to happen as well. Uh, it's It's a... An act of gross cultural vandalism. Mm. I can't tell you how much it upsets me. It's not just the the censorship, the fact that ignorant and disrespectful changes are made at the behest of idiots no. who are worried about hurty feelings. Yes. It's not just that. It's the fact that he wrote his books very deliberately and absolutely brilliantly, deliberately, for the effect he wanted to create. Sure. How dare these hysterical dullards change his words exactly. and i'm afraid that what what that means is we're now in a world where you the reader cannot be sure you're reading the words of the author mm. i think it's disgusting i hate this whole trend for censorship anyway but he's such a beloved author mm. in my family i loved him as a child all I read my all kids his loved books. his stuff my kids loved him i mean one of my sons must have listened to mm. james and the giant peach about 500 times yeah. i do not tell right. a lie you know that we read the whole library of his books and I think the idea that his words were changed would have him turning in in the ground yeah. and got... it's also dishonest because as we said yesterday the, the, the changes are not immediately um, you know seeable you can't you can't you don't know what changes they've made they don't actually refer to the changes other than to say some of the words in this have been changed from from the original but of course manuscript they don't. they don't want you so to be informed you don't know what bits no. they've changed if you've never read the book have you they don't want you to be informed right here's one this is a really bad one mm. it's from matilda your daughter vanessa judging by what she learned this term has no hearing organs hearing organs at all it's quite funny it's pretty mild as well and this is what it becomes Judging by what your daughter Vanessa has learned this term, this fact alone is more interesting than anything I have taught in the classroom. What? Yes. Doesn't even mean the Presumably same thing. Presumably, because it? hearing loss is ableist or something. I mean, how boring. Well, yeah, is that except it's not saying that. It's saying that she's obviously not listening, isn't it? Yes. That's it's, what it's not saying. just changing a little bit. It's not just changing mm. a word here and there. And right. there's a lot of that that's gone on as well. It's totally changing the meaning. Yes. The meaning he intended. I mean, at one point, um, hag is changed for crow because, God forbid, we'd be denigratory towards women, yeah. Mike. Oh. Although I'm not sure why a crow is better. Well, apparently, all I don't of know the... why I'd once be called no, a crow. Apparently, all of the female 
female cashiers have been changed to female businesswomen, yes. as if oh. being a cashier is somehow shameful. Well, this is the other example I bought. This is from The Witches. Even if she is working as a cashier in a supermarket or typing letters for a businessman, becomes... Even if she's working as a top scientist or running a business, I mean, get over it. That's Women pathetic. did different jobs that then. That is pathetic. This is this is not just about the hurty feelings of people now who are frankly hysterical. Mm. This is about assuming that people can't understand different historical contexts. Yeah. There is no shame in being a cashier whatsoever. But also those top jobs were less open to women when mm. he wrote the book. Yeah. Get over it. What are they going to do? Are they going to rewrite Cinderella? Yes. I mean, well, this know, is why I no, wanted wait, to wait, ask wait, the in question. Cinderella, you'd have a blended family. The parents could be trans. Yeah. Prince Charming could wear a puffy PVC black dress with platform heels. Cinders could wear a suit. Yeah. The mice could be liberated from pulling a pumpkin coach by animal rights activists mm. and no one gets married at all. Very good. And there must be some room for some Just Stop Oil activists holding up the coach <laughs> on its way to, you know, wherever it was. Yeah, if it's not neo-feudal enough. Yeah. Um, but, you know, this is the point, actually, that these children's stories, they're informed by mm. fairy tales because Roald Dahl love fairy tales, yeah. but they speak to the same kind of dark archetypes that fairy tales use as well. You can't sanitise the human mind. No. The human mind likes archetypes, it likes darkness, it likes cautionary tales, and it likes symbolism. Mm. You can rewrite the books, but you will make them boring as hell and nobody will buy them. Yeah. And that's the thing, actually. Boycott Puffin. I wouldn't buy these books. No. no way. I think they might find themselves on Plank of the Week this week puffin i'm on plank of the week this week are you consider this bookmarked excellent um is it the, one of yours then shall i put that away oh i'm I'm, I'm all over puffin all and right. maybe i'll come dressed as a puffin maybe. um i will identify as a puffin so the other thing i want to make the other point i want to make about this not that it's part of a ridiculous trend but my goodness doesn't it show the value of buying printed books yes I was rifling through my son's bedroom today for the Roald Dahl books. Damn it, we've already given them to the charity shop because I'm never going to be able to replace them now. Yeah. I can't replace the books. So, you know, this shows you if you buy an audio book or an e-book, what if, it, what if it's changed mm. after you already well, bought it? Well, I suggested yesterday happen? when I was on the tour, I said, well, maybe we'll end up with a two-tier, you know, sort of literary system where you'll have the book as it was originally written and then you'll have the woke version for people who might be easily upset and offended. So you could have two versions of the book. I wouldn't object to that because people are so ridiculously stupid that they need to have a book sort of watered down for them. Then let them buy it. But, you know... I'm not in favour, and, and I think the good thing is, is that because this is a fairly unusual case, I don't imagine, that, and lots of authors have, have been against it. It's not that unusual. Well, listen to what Peter Hitchens had to say yesterday. He said, this has been going on for a while. If you mm. read a lot of children's books, they're written with the kind of, you know, uh, the selectivity maniacs yeah. in mind, so that you don't write things which might not make it past the sort of, uh, you know, the censorious... You know, because um, of types. sensitivity readers, mm. they're mm. they're changing books before they even get to the published stage. Now we're rewriting published books. This is this is dark. This is Orwellian. I yeah. know the term is overused, but it's literally Orwellian. What do you think they'll do to J.K. Rowling's books mm. after her demise? Yeah. Now she's got a lot of money. I'm sure she's protecting her literary estate, yes. really, really watertight, nuts and bolts. Yeah. But what would would they want to make Hermione trans in the future? As mm. a little dig at, yeah. at J.K. Rowling, who's allegedly a transphobe. Of course, she's not. You know, you can just see where this goes. This piques me not just as a reader mm. and a person of, as, of common sense, but also as an author. A I person never, of common sense. I never a person of common sense. There you go. A woman with common sense. And I don't. <laughs> but I don't want my my words that I've written to be changed after no. I'm dead. They're written the way I want also, them to be Also, stop messing written. about with our language. I heard a great one the other day. It was an opera singer, an American opera singer, who apparently found it difficult to get work because he was too fat. Um, and he was talking about it. He actually described himself at one point. Uh, as a person of size. 
And I just went, what? Person of size. Well, you know, they've taken out all the books that imply that anyone's fat or small or yeah. stupid or a woman or anything from the Roald Dahl books. Lots of gender descriptions. But Augustus, um, what's his face? Gloop uh, is not fat anymore, but he's enormous. How is that any different? How is enormous I, different well, from fat? But you see, this is, this is what happens when you get into this kind of censorship maze. You make one word objectionable, replace it with another, and then that word becomes yeah. objectionable. But you, you know, you wait, enormous will be gone soon, mm. and there'll be some other word. But, it, but of course, a word is a symbol for a meaning. Mm. So the symbol, the new symbol, will acquire the objectionable meaning if people don't get their heads straight. Do you know what one result of this is going to be? It's going to be really good for antique bookshops mm. and secondhand bookshops. I see first editions and print books really going yeah. up in value. Totally. This has made me totally reconsider print books. Look, if you think about it, even if you've got a power cut or electricity is eye-wateringly mm. expensive, you can light your candle and you could read a print book. You can't charge up your Kindle in an electricity power cut and you know you, you know the words won't have been changed plus I went into a second hand bookshop recently and I saw some books I'd actually got rid of when I was young mm. you know the same childhood books I had one of them was £400 right. I'm kicking myself wow. I'm kicking myself for getting rid of all of my old childhood books and you. our Roald Dahl collection mm. well there you are if you've got an original Roald Dahl keep it don't get rid of it. And I think that's the message. Um, Laura, thank you very much indeed. We'll see you for Plank of the Week soon. Um, we've got much more to do, uh, including some breaking news that Hugh Merriman, uh, who is the rail minister uh, in this particular government, apparently had some confidential information on the laptop uh, on a train and it was stolen. Oh, well. This is Talk TV. On your mobile, on your wavelengths, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV with you all the way through until one o'clock when it is time, of course, for Ian Collins. Uh, Kevin O'Sullivan sitting in once more at four o'clock for Vanessa Felt. Seven o'clock, uh, Jeremy Kyle live uh, with me, amongst others, uh, who are going to be on his show tonight. Eight o'clock, Piers Morgan live from New York, of course, and the talk from 9pm. It's all happening right here on Talk TV. Coming up, uh, we're going to have an appreciation or otherwise a critique, perhaps, uh, of the uh, Vladimir Putin speech, uh, which went on for quite a long time. Uh, we're going to speak to James Billet, who's editor uh, of The Post at Unheard. Also, uh, we'll continue to talk about the Wild West uh, of Twitter, the Wild West of TikTok, the Wild West uh, of Instagram, the wild west of Facebook, the wild west indeed of social media. Lots of you have got some very interesting things to say about it. The question on your mind and the question on everybody's mind is how do we stop a repeat of what happened in the Nicola Bully case where people and ordinary members of the public were walking around a, a, a scene that could have become a crime scene, who were gaining access to parts of um, uh, the investigation that they shouldn't have been doing, who were posting things on social media uh, accounts which were uh, at the very least libelous, possibly intrusive, possibly damaging uh, and possibly wrong. And somebody, nobody seems to be bearing any responsibility for it. So we would like to know precisely what the plan is going to be so that this does not happen again and certainly does not happen every single time there is a high-profile missing person case or a high-profile murder or a high-profile incident in some way, shape or form which has to do with the police. You know, the excuse so far that seems to be given is that, oh, well, people have become very addicted um, to um, true crime podcasts. Well, that's not really a reason to allow people to clamber around, um, you know, murder scenes or to clamber about areas where they think there might be a missing person or going into houses to search for somebody without any evidence whatsoever to suggest that they are there. 0344 499 is the number. Let's speak right now, though, uh, to James Billet, editor of The Post, to find out what he made uh, of Vladimir Putin's speech earlier on today. James, a very good afternoon to you. 
Good afternoon. I suppose we wouldn't be surprised, would we, to hear uh, Vladimir Putin talking about defending the civilization of Russia, defending the history of Russia and blaming the West for sort of trying to take over the world and blaming NATO for the invasion of Ukraine. No, I mean, he touched on a lot of the familiar themes that he's spoken about in previous speeches, um, attacking the West for its sort of cultural hyperliberalism, even accusing the Anglican Church of having a gender neutral God. Um, so he's clearly keeping up to date with whatever's going on over here. Um, to be honest, what was more interesting to me was that this was a speech devoted as much to a Russian audience as it was to an international audience. Mm. So a lot of the issues he's bringing up, you know, set aside the spectre of nuclear conflicts were bread and butter issues like infrastructure, grain, and tweaking the tax bracket, all of issues that I think we could relate to here. But there was this heavier context where it was all geared towards what was going on in Ukraine and the sort of dark overtones there. Mm. I mean, it was a, a, obviously a, an audience that was very much on side. He didn't have to worry too much about what the reaction to anything that he said was going to be. But an awful lot of what he does now is for a domestic audience, isn't it? I mean, you might even say that the whole invasion of Ukraine is based around uh, his domestic audience. Putin only needs to concern himself with the opinion of the Russian public. Um, even if he has, let's say, a rather liberal interpretation of what democracy should look like, he is still beholden to what the Russian people feel, and he is going to be keenly aware of what the opinion polls are on that set, on that score. So the reason he's been so reluctant to call a war up until this speech, in fact, and call it a special military operation, is because he didn't want to start mobilizing more of the population um, beyond what it already is. Um, he's very careful to bring the public along with him in every step of the way he's gone with this war, no matter how radical it's been. So it was actually probably one of the most striking features of this speech um, was the fact he would actually name check the war itself rather mm. than calling it a special military operation. Yeah. And I mean, in some ways, he's been helped a little bit by Joe Biden, hasn't he? Joe Biden suddenly turns up in Kiev um, and starts talking about World War Three. Um, which, in fact, some people have urged him not to do in Britain and some people in, in, uh, in you know, European countries have urged him not to do. But that, in some ways, that's kind of fed into to, to Putin's rhetoric, isn't it? Yeah, the strange thing to have come out of that Munich security conference with all the Western leaders is that a lot of them now seem to just be accepting that this is going to be a long, drawn-out war. Um, I think what's becoming pretty clear from opinion polls back in the West is actually that the public aren't as receptive to that idea as perhaps the leaders are. Um, Putin actually mirrored some of this rhetoric and say, well, if the West want to do this, we're going to do this as well. We're gearing up for a long war as much as they are. Um, so I think we're going to see a slight more of a dissonance between what Western leaders think and their public and how, how far along the road they can actually take them with them in the second year of this war. Yes. And as far as the uh, uh, the second year of the war goes from the West's perspective, I mean, there's obviously, you know, sort of unanimity amongst political leaders uh, from Washington to, to London to, uh, to Brussels to even um, Berlin. Um, but people are not quite so sure, are they? Because there hasn't been, I mean, we've talked about it here a lot on Talk TV, there hasn't really been much of a debate about where this all goes and what ha actually happens over the next few months. I think one of the striking things about the way this war has developed is the fact that there hasn't really been a limiting principle. We started off with tanks and now it's going to be fighter jets and it it's remains to be seen what the next stage will be after that. There has to come a point where the West says no more. And I don't necessarily think that will come from the political leadership. I think it's more likely to come from the public itself. Um, when they start seeing the level of aid and the amount of aid that's being sent over to Ukraine and ahead of whatever's being used into their own country, 
I think that might start to chafe a little bit with the British public, um, especially if we do get a kind of winter snap or belated winter snap um, yes. when the energy crisis hits. Right. And I mean, there was nothing in the speech today from Putin to suggest anything about a change of tactics from him. But we are all expecting a kind of an upgrading, if you like, in, in, in activity, aren't we? We're expecting, you know, the Russians to sort of push for a bit more ground if they can get it. Some people tell me that they believe if he doesn't get it, they'll just kind of sit back in the Donbass and be happy with that and just kind of say, so what are you going to do about that? Mm. It's well, the, the one formal uh, announcement that was made was that, that Russia is uh, suspending its participation in the New START treaty, which is a, a, an arms treaty that it has with the US. But aside from that, there, weren't, there w- wasn't any huge indication as to where Russia will be going next. It seems like, much like Ukraine, in fact, the, both sides are gearing up for a large spring offensive that should be coming in the next few months. And this also leaves open the possibility of a further mobilization. Um, so far, around half a million Russians have been mobilized and they're in the process of being trained or actually out there on the front lines in Donbass. Mm. Um, this could lead to another few hundred thousand further down the year to be, to be brought out into the mm. battlefield. Yes. Now, you've written a piece in which you talk about the, the support for the war in Ukraine. Um, depending on which country you're in. What did you find? Well, the interesting thing is that, again, what I was saying about the political rhetoric of some of the leaders is that while we are seeing um, a lot of tub-thumping and loud cheerleading on behalf of the Ukrainian cause, which is all to the good, but what we're seeing in the past few months is that there's a slight bit of war weariness kicking into the, the, the public. And what was interesting is that this isn't just in America or Germany and historically more dovish countries, but even in the Baltic states, which has been sort of the most ardent critics of the Putin regime, even them on some questions such as uh, applying the most stringent economic sanctions or accepting refugees, there have been pretty perceptible drops in opinions there too. So it's just something that the political leader is going to have to bear in mind going forward that even in the most you know, stringently pro Ukraine states that there is this, this downtick of support. All right. And what is that, do you think, in terms of a fault line? I mean, what are they, what are they, what is causing that support to, to falter slightly? Is it the length of time, the amount of money, um, the commitment militarily? What do you think that is? I think it, it's firstly, it's, it's worth noting that the first year, Western leaders displayed a remarkable degree of unity and the Western support for it was pretty impressive. Um, I think what now is beginning to, is as it looks like the war is setting in for the long haul, and that doesn't seem to be drawing to a conclusion anytime soon, and any peace talks have been basically out the window in the last eight months, I think there's a sort of slight jadedness in the public that's sort of slowly filtering through. They've got refugee schemes that have now been in their residencies for eight to, eight to nine months. There's a bit of exhaustion there. They're feeling the, a bit of extra cost at the, the gas pump. Um, and I think there's just this overexposure, almost a normalisation of this conflict that I think is starting to grate a little bit. Yes. I think they want to draw to a swift conclusion faster than most people. Yeah. I mean, I think also, as I say, in the end, there, there is a kind of open-ended um, commitment here. I was asked by somebody the other day, all of this aid that we're giving to Ukraine, is it something which is eventually going to be paid back? Uh, is it a loan? Uh, is it a gift? What is it exactly? We're just, uh, by the way, as we're uh, talking to you, we're just seeing the beast, which is the presidential oh, yeah. car uh, of Joe Biden, I think, uh, arriving in Warsaw, uh, where he's meeting with Poland's president and other NATO leaders. So so Biden on very much of a sort of European tour, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Well, on, on the aid point, I mean, America has given more aid to Ukraine in the past year than any other country combined. Um, but 
America being America, there are always going to be strings attached. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's just going to be a handout. Um, what you're more likely to see is a kind of Marshall-style plan where they do expect to recoup some of those um, uh, aid proposals later on in the year or whenever it starts recovering. Mm -hmm. um, I've already seen sort of McKinsey-style plans for uh, Ukrainian infrastructure rebuilding and projects like that, um, obviously costing in the hundreds of millions. But I think it'll be very interesting to see once and when this war is hopefully over, exactly what that form that takes when it in, in terms of recovery. Yes, of course, absolutely. Good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed uh, for joining us. We've got there, uh, of course, with pictures, as you can see, of Joe Biden arriving uh, in Warsaw. That was James Biller, editor of The Post uh, at Unheard, talking about the level of support slightly on the wane in some countries in Europe. Um, not all of them, but one of the things that he has found is some of the less wealthy countries, obviously not particularly happy about handing money over. Um, but uh, Vladimir Putin, very bullish, as you would expect him to be in his speech today, uh, will bring you latest news uh, from Joe Biden. He'll probably be speaking later on uh, to NATO leaders and uh, the Polish president as well. Coming up, though, uh, we're going to speak to Jamie Jenkins because there's some stats we need to check with him. Uh, COVID wise at least this is talk tv across the uk online and on dab the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio so if you enjoyed that be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1 monday to friday on talk radio via dab online or via the talk radio app if you have an opinion on the stories we cover we'd love to hear from you call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at talk radio during the show to have your say the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio